Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. This week we are joined by United States Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Joel Lodgeslaw. Ooh, uh, Joel, thanks so much for coming, man. No problem, mate. Let's talk about, talk a little about your background. Where'd you grow up? What made you decide to join the Marine Corps? So I have a reasonably uh, odd background, I guess you'd say. Uh, I was born in the Philippines, uh, but my family at the time lived in uh, Malaysia. And I am adopted. So I was adopted and we started living in Malaysia for roughly 12 years. I didn't come here to the U.S. till uh, very late 90s. And to be honest, that was a massive culture shock. Sure. So it took me a little while to get in things. And oddly enough, I ended up being kind of like a jock in high school. And then I always knew I wanted to go to war. I really wanted to do it. I saw a bunch of cool, what do you call it, war movies, Heartbreak Ridge, et cetera, all that kind of fun stuff. Of that kind of like molds you for that in a sense. And I just really wanted to go see what it was all about. And September 11th happened. And even though that was a huge moving factor for a lot of people, I honestly believe that I would have ended up in the Marine Corps or some branch of military, regardless if that ever happened. Right. How old were you when September 11th happened? Ooh, um, hold on, math is hard. So you're 30 now, so I'm 30. What's your about my age? I was 15. 15, yeah, 15. So you were, you were adopted, you moved from, to Malaysia. Were your parents American citizens? Yes, uh, both okay. my parents were American citizens. All right, so they were, well, why were they living in Malaysia? Uh, my dad worked for Pratt & Whitney, so naturally. So it was, on, it was business related? Business, yeah. And then, so he got sent back to the States. How old were you? When he, like 12, 10? So, yes, I, that's <laughs> serious culture shock. Oh, yeah. It was because uh, the formative years are typically, you know, 10 to 15. So um, I had quite a chitch, switch over from lifestyle, customs, just how people interact with each other, language. And it, it was pretty difficult. Did you, like, when you came here, did you, were you like, all right, I like this place? Or you, did you, oh God, were you homesick? It, it yeah. sucked. It absolutely sucked. Was it to Pittsburgh that you moved initially? Yeah, um, I moved out to uh, West Allegheny, that, around that area. And that's where I went to high school and middle school at, so. When did you come around to be like, all right, I, I like this place? Not till I started uh, playing football. Okay. <laughs> I didn't really understand football, never watched it, obviously, overseas. I'm like, okay, well, this is fun. I, I run and I hit the other person. Well, why not? <laughs> when you went to try out, did you show up in, like, soccer clothes thinking it was going to be a soccer tryout? No, no, unfortunately, I did not. Um, <laughs> a bunch of people tried to get me to do it before because I, I was a bigger guy back in those days. And they're like, oh, yeah, you'd be great at this. So I was like, okay. Uh, what position did they have you playing? Uh, defensive end and offensive guard. Okay. So you were you were a— a healthy-sized young man. Oh, yes. I was a, that's a very polite way of putting right. it. <laughs> you were healthier. Obviously, you, you had a, a body transformation upon joining the Marine Corps, I would imagine, right? I lost 60 pounds. It, during boot? Yeah, I went Holy in uh, 210. I exited like 155, I think. What did your parents say when you came home? Were they like, where's the rest of you, dude? Pretty much. My mom was like horrified. How did they, what, what were their thoughts when you joined the Marines? Oh, best thing ever. Uh, my dad was largely indifferent because he says, all right, you got to do what you got to do. My mom tried to fight the recruiter when he came to pick me up to go to MAPS, uh, which was absolutely awesome. I, I, that is probably one of most, my most <laughs> treasured family moments ever is her running out like, you can't take him. She, she was very hardcore liberal. 
you can't do this. This is illegal. And literally tries to fight him. My dad has to come back and grab him. Goes like, no, you know, we don't do this. This isn't how our family acts. Her just losing her mind. I I thought it was hilarious, but <laughs> you said she's liberal, so she was. I'm imagining against the war to begin with. I wouldn't say so much against the war as just against all wars in a sense, and definitely against her baby fighting oh, in that yeah. war. Yeah. Well, I had a, I had a brother, and he had died previously in uh, Singapore, so I was the last son in a sense. So they were also really concerned about that. How did you? I imagine you knew your what your mom's reaction would be to a degree, right? I'm kind of an asshole, so I definitely knew that it was going to be something. I didn't thought it would be that well, entertaining, yeah. but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how did you approach it? Did you tell your dad first and like, hey, dad, maybe you want to tell her? Or <laughs> I think my mom, I, I joke a lot. And I'll be like, oh, I'm doing, I'll say I'm doing something really crazy or like, uh, hey, I'm going to take a trip to Europe or something crazy on my own or that. And she just thought it was one of those things. And I'm like, hey, I'm actually going to join the Marine Corps. She's like, oh, stop pulling my leg. Right. And then I just said, but my, my dad kind of knows when I'm joking and when I'm not joking. So he was cooler about it. Yeah. But she's obviously supportive, right? Like she's proud of you. She's very proud of me, of, uh, which I always thought was kind of uh, awesome in a sense. You know, no matter how much they are against initially joining, is once you do join, they do become very supportive. I mean, there's buy-in, right? Like there's forced buy-in even. This force money, and you know, it's that moment of pride when you see um, you come off that parade deck and you're wearing, you know, your uniform. Uh, and you're not a fat kid anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you're not a fat kid anymore. And you know, it was a. Uh, they were very proud of that. So you are? Are you O three eleven? What's your What's your most? O three thirty one machine gunner. Machine gunner. That's. I mean, that's awesome, right? Like, what? Fifty cal, thirty. Well, it's whatever. Seven six two fifty cal Mark nineteen automatic grenade launcher. That's pretty much the vast majority of everything. It, we're, we do do it as especially uh, MOS pretty much because you have to do uh, indirect fires, everything like that. That actually is really applicable to machine gun. Uh, the only reason why I chose it is when I originally went into the Marine Corps, I had a 93 or 83 in the ASVAB, and they're like, oh, go Intel, go this. I'm like, well, you know, why join the Marine Corps for Intel? I could go sure. someplace else that's not going to suck as much, and I really want to be someplace that sucks. You want to go shoot something, right? <laughs> yeah, shoot something. So he said, you can be a mortarman. I'm like, what do you do? Like, you drop bombs on people. I'm like, yeah, that sounds kind of boring. Can, you can be a soldier and you can shoot rockets. I'm like, uh, you can be a machine gunner like Rambo. I'm like, Rambo, huh? I mean, I, I can Rambo do that. Rambo sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. So how does it work? You're, are, you're in like a regular line unit, like in a heavy weapons squad? We have like a heavy weapons platoon. So you have your mortarman, your assaultman, which are the rocket guys, and you have your machine gunners. Uh, typically, there'll be three squads of machine gunners, uh, roughly um, seven individuals per squad, which will be tasked to each individual platoon in their direct support. And the other platoons in your company are just infantry Just your regular units. crunchies, you know. So you guys, because you get the heavy weapons, like you get to ride a lot, right? <laughs> Only mounted stuff. No, uh, that's only if you go to weapons company. Ah. If you go to a line platoon, it just means you get to carry it. Nice. <laughs> uh, I found that out the hard way. I did I did spend some time for a weapon company for Iraq, which was awesome. The whole motto of you can't truck it, fuck it is an yeah. amazing thing. But yes, the hiking was not fun. Well, a lot of that too is like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are just different worlds. Like it's, yeah, there's... Brown people, right? Yeah, it's hot as shit. But other than that, like, really, like, those are 
Iraq's an actual like country with buildings and roads and stuff, man. <laughs> Afghanistan is still kind of in the dark ages to a degree. I mean, Kabul's pretty nice, you know, like there's there's pockets, but you get out into, like you were down in Sangin, right? Sangin yeah. province? That shit's medieval, man. It's like mud huts, dirt roads, chickens running around. I remember the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life is we're driving through Kunar province and I see this like goat on the side of the road and it's got this leather bag around its stomach. And I'm like, what is that? And I hit the turp. I'm like, dude, what is that? He goes, oh, they have to put that there so the kids don't go suckle directly from the goat. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of Twilight Zone place is this, man? Afghanistan is utterly medieval. I mean, the only place I could say I've ever been where it's kind of been like that in regions, and I wouldn't even say it's that bad, is Nepal. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're dirt poor there, but I think they have more of a society than anything. In Afghanistan, it's just... It's tribal. It's, yeah, it, it's a tribe. You know, it's, anyone beyond your family is an enemy. Yeah, it's like a thousand different <laughs> tribes. Like they, And people don't understand that, you know, it's... And that's what's been so hard about Afghanistan, right? As you get over there, and I was talking to somebody the other day, it's like, uh, you raise your hand, you're like, hey, sir, how do we know when we won? <laughs> how many points do we need to score? <laughs> like, how many touchdowns do we need to be the winners here? And no one knows because there's no end game of like, like Iraq, the end game was like, all right, we need to have a stable democratic government. I guess that's what we tried to do in Afghanistan, but they didn't want that. People that live out in their mud compound, out in the middle of nowhere, do not give a shit who if President Karzai is or what he says, right? They've got their little provincial governor. More importantly, they've got their little local uh, imam or sheikh or whatever, and, like, he gives the guidance. They don't care about – if you ask them what are you, they'll be like, oh, I'm Pashtu, right? They don't say I'm Afghan. So it's a, like a weird thing we were trying to do. So also the interesting thing is, again, as you're saying, is survival is all they care about. Yeah. I mean, it, I was talking to interpreters, and they're like, yeah, you know what? This family, they sent one son, he's fighting for the Taliban. I'm like, oh, shit, maybe we should wrap him. I'm like, oh, their other son's also in the Afghani army. Yeah. I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, well, they have like five of them. So, you know, send one each that way. You can guarantee at least three will probably survive. Yeah. I mean, and people do what they got to do, right? Like, you got to put food on the table. The only export they've ever had is opium. And we made pretty quick work of that when we invaded, right? They just burned that shit down. So the people are literally starving. Taliban come along and say, hey, we'll give you 100 bucks to shoot a rocket at the Americans. I mean, it's a no-brainer. I would do it if I had if that was no other way to take care of my child. Like, yeah, you better believe I'll do it. You better believe I'll go bury that IED. Yeah, it's not even a rocket. They say one guy here. You dig the hole. You build the bomb. You drop yeah. the bomb in it, and boom. And that's how they do it. And it's the I mean? only way to get paid over there. It's the whole thing's frustrating. Let me ask you this: What do you think about? So, when were you there last? Oh, 2011? 2010 through 2011. And you did, you did one tour to Iraq, one to Afghanistan? Yep. I did 2008, 2009 to Iraq, and 2010, 2011 to Afghanistan. All right. So, given your experience in both, how do you feel about how we're going about, like, our current policy, like, regarding Iraq and Syria? Iraq, I don't see how we don't basically crush ISIS and pretty much stabilize the country again. To be honest, uh, even when I was there in 2008, 2009, most of the war was over. We got shot at, yeah, sure, but a couple, you know, random rounds fired in our direction when I'm in an armored vehicle, why even return fire? It's not important. We'll just push through. That was the concept on convoys. Right. Push through. Who cares? And we all knew it was going to save lives because they took ownership at some point that, hey, this is my community. This is my town. And we're going to make sure that no more of us get killed and we'll do our own policing now. 
That's what happened there. And I think that's even continued on, even though it's in militia form now in Iraq. Right. But it's going to stabilize at some point. It has that ability. We'll probably be there for another five, 10 years. That's guaranteed in some capacity. But I don't see it not being somewhat of a success if your success is at least it didn't turn into Afghanistan. Yeah, it's a low bar. <laughs> that's, a, that's a low bar. What do you, so let me color a little context here. So like you're a pretty conservative guy. I'm a pretty liberal guy. But like there's shades of gray there. Like me and you at the cabin a few months ago, we had a pretty heated disagreement over religion. The weird thing is you're the conservative. I'm the liberal. I'm the one that took the super conservative position on the religion. You took the super kumbaya liberal position on it, right? So it's not, it's not black and white of one side and the other. So with that context, like, what do you think we do with the Kurds? Kurds, I think eventually, uh, I know they just said we're going to take away our weapons we gave them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're going to line up and give them to us too. Okay. Because we all know that's easy yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah, that, that's going to happen. <laughs> I think the Kurds, one way or another, they're going to get their independence. I mean, Turkey doesn't have the resources to do, deal with them, and they're a fully formed country with over 500,000 troops. Right. Think about that. Iraq's definitely not going to have the time to deal with them. None foreseeable future. Syria, um, what about Syria? There's nothing to really enforce it. The Kurds, I don't think we really directly support the independence. Personally, I think we should. But I don't So you think do we, agree yeah. that it would be really beneficial to us to have oh, this moderate pro-U.S. Absolutely. Sovereign nation over there. I, I just, I think that's a no-brainer. I don't know why anyone would disagree with that. It's like, it's like saying, "Hey, we could have another Israel over here, but a Muslim Israel, so there's not all that baggage tied." I mean, dude, it, pro West. There, you can be an atheist, you can be agnostic, you can be Jew, you can be a Muslim, and when you go to Kurdistan, they say, "Hey, man, are you going to be a dick?" And if you say <laughs> no, they're like, "Well, welcome, welcome. We're we, we're glad to have yeah. you, right?" I think I think Kurdistan, if it ever becomes Kurdistan, Kurdistan would be awesome. But I also don't think we should force it in a sense. I understand why they're not coming out and saying build Kurdistan now, because then everyone's going to say, "Oh, are you going to support every other what do you call it place that's don't like likes us?" Because let's be honest, it's it it is very medieval in the entirety of the middle Middle East. Well, absolutely, and and half the reason we have these problems is because a bunch of white British and American dudes mm -hmm. eighty years ago said, "Hey, you know what? Be cool." We redrew all these lines and create all these new countries, right? Like Iraq wasn't a thing 90 years ago. Like that shit's non-existent. But in our infinite wisdom, we're like, you know what these people will love? If we give them their own country, mm -hmm. we tell them where the borders are. And plot twist, we could draw the border like right through where one family yeah. lives. So one's on one side, <laughs> one's on the other. I think uh, that was probably... Colonialisms and the continuing effects, we will deal with that for a long, long time. Yeah, that's definitely on us, though. Like, we, we should take the heat for a lot of that. That's that's a lot of it. I mean, there's been some goods and positives in the long run of, uh, what do you call it? You can just call it the fallout of the Enlightenment age, in a sense. Right. Into colonialism. But in the Middle East, East, same point in time, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, if we start covering up little pieces that don't agree with them, because we know they support terrorism. We know it. Everyone knows it. Absolutely. I mean, then maybe they just start directly supporting it or turn a bigger blind eye to what's happening. Yeah. And that, well, that's a tricky thing, right? Is like, um, so we fall into that, you gotta align yourself with Stalin to beat Hitler kind of mentality, right? Like there's, there's no real good options over there. And not that they're all bad guys. It's that they all have their own interest. And it's just by the nature of it, almost impossible for their interests to line up with ours. And like that, that part's fair. 
but it's so complicated. Like people, particularly civilians that don't have any sort of Middle Eastern experience, like they, you're in your mind like, all right, the Iranians are the bad guys. Saudis are cool. They're on our side. Like Qatar's cool. They're on our side. But it's more complicated than that. Like Saudis, the 9-11 hijackers were all Saudis. Like bin Laden was a Saudi. Like this is not a, there's not, there's no clear lines of like one country's, except for the Kurds, I'll say. It's kind of the exception to the rule. I'd, I'd say it's beyond com complicated. At this point, it's complex. Uh, yeah. There's no real way to untangle it in a sense ever. And I think having us have more limited involvement, besides obviously finish off ISIS and, you know, at least making sure we leave Iraq in a stable form, because we should finish up what we started, we need to be very moderate with our interference. If you look at just history in general, most casualties caused in civil wars, anything like that, is when a foreign power becomes involved. And reality is us trying to be the good guys and decide who's this and how's that is probably the worst thing ever. Right. Well, and there's something to be said for, like, America, we gained our independence by fighting the British. Now, granted, we had material support from the French, which I have no problem with that, us supporting other countries with, you know, financial support, weapons, training. But if the people there aren't willing to fight, how do you come in and convince them to do so, right? Like, if, if you're having to convince them to fight, then, like, it's, that fighting is not necessarily in their best interest if they don't want to do it. At some point, we have to stop saying, like, we are responsible for fixing this. So that brings to Afghanistan. What do you think? Because Afghanistan is just, it's just getting worse every day. Well, again, Afghanistan is an interesting thing. Our number one ally, Pakistan, will never, ever want to see a stable Afghanistan. And you look back and actually Taliban is from Pakistan. Right. That's rally where it came at. And Afghanistan, if you would look at their actual, what do you call, past two claims, is roughly half of what he, the entirety of Pakistan. So a stable Afghanistan is in their worst interest ever. Particularly with a stable yeah. India on the other side of them. I mean, you don't want two stable enemies surrounding you. So they will never, ever encourage that. Same point in time. Would you go so far as to say they won't allow it? I don't know if they can not allow it. But for all, all I know, you can put as much interference in the country, but people will still say, fuck Pakistan. Right. And that's a general sentiment for the most part of most people I talked to was, fuck Pakistan. Because they know that they've been causing trouble throughout the government and all the lives that have been lost because of their foreign interference. Yeah. Well, would they, they would, to us, they would ask, like, why are you here? Why aren't you in Pakistan where the real bad guys are? Like, why, <laughs> did they do that to you guys too? Oh, yeah. And it gets frustrating. You're like, man, you know what? Shit. You might have a point, man. Like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> I mean, it's... Do you feel confident that Mattis has been given full, I feel, full reins of... I feel very confident that he has the ability to make the decisions he needs to be, without question. I think he's far superior in Trump in any sort of, what do you call it, global politics. Any sort of tactical general. sense, certainly. Oh, tactical I mean, he's, and not I, I can't think of a better guy. Yeah. <laughs> if we had to pick one, I would pick Mattis, like for sure. But I don't know if the answer is more bodies in Afghanistan. Uh, Sangin was, a, you know, a shithole. Did we win it? Yeah, at the cost of 500 uh, it casualties. A, it was a meat grinder. Yeah, 500 casualties later, and you say, okay, well, we just basically lost almost the entirety of five companies. Right. So what do we do here? What was the point? Yeah, I get it. That's where they grew all the opium. Great. And you know what? 2014, back in enemy hands. Right. No difference was made. 
So if we're not looking there for do a solid thing, and if it's just these minor 4,000 troops here, 2,000 troops here, 2,000 there, that's not going to make a real impactful difference. They know it, we know it. And one thing I say we had difficulty over there is the people knew it. They knew if they were going to make their bet to survive, they'd bet on the Taliban. Because right. we as the foreign force were not going we were going to leave at some point. Out. Right. And that's fair. Yeah, it's I understandable. And that, that's the thing. It's like, I don't, could you, could you pacify Afghanistan? Sure. It's going to take 200,000 troops. <laughs> and it's going to take a lot of losses. A ton of losses. Is it, is it, is it, does it make sense to pacify Afghanistan? I'd say probably not. Do you still need certain bases and regions of Afghanistan reasonably secure in case Iran does something stupid? Yes. But in the entirety of Afghanistan now. That honestly, one of the most ideal portions is just we get a portion of Afghanistan stabilized. And I think, yeah, like um, Mazar Sharif up north, uh, what's the other province up there um, where Massoud was from? Panjir. Yeah. That's probably our best bet because Panjir is like this massive mountain range that has literally like a 2,000 meter opening. And there's zero Taliban up there because there's a line of like. Uh, Tajiks with guns that like don't let you in <laughs> unless you live there. So maybe, I mean, maybe that's what we need to focus on. But it's, I mean, would you support sending 200,000 troops over there if it meant that we would like win this thing, whatever winning means? Yeah, I, I mean, if, if my name was called Tamar, the good Afghanistan, underneath Secretary Mattis, I would go. Yeah, so let's... Put a hashtag by that. So you're still in. Oh, yeah. I don't know if we mentioned that. So, yeah, when we talk about these troops, like you are one of these potential troops. I'm on the sidelines. I've been out for a while, so I don't have to worry about it. But you'd be willing to go. I, I, would, I would go without a hat. And I, I definitely would support. Do I think from a long-term strategic sense, like of what I know, my knowledge of politics and everything like that, that it, it's necessary? No. So if you got orders tomorrow to deploy, what orders would you least like to have? Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan? Ooh, I'd like all of them. The ones I wouldn't like would be Korea, because then it'd be cold. Korea? <laughs> North Korea specifically for yeah, an invasion? North Korea, yeah. <laughs> you just heard Bob Harbiel talk about they had to build their own yeah. ladders <laughs> on the uh, LSTs to <laughs> climb the seawall. Yeah, I'd, I'd pass on uh, the coldness. I'm not a big cold. I've done a bunch of cold weather training and at Bridgeport and all these other places, and I'm, nope, don't want to do it. <laughs> So what are you guys doing with no one left behind? How are you how are you trying to remedy this situation? So a lot of what we're trying to do is A, I know there's four Afghan families certainly right now in Afghanistan trying to get here and have contacted this particular chapter right now here in Pittsburgh. A lot of it is there's a part called Lost in Translation, which deals specifically with the State Department and getting that mess solved. And to be honest, that takes years. Uh it's not a pretty picture. I mean, what do you expect? The other part is when we do finally get them here, we provide a mentor, we provide a family, and we just provide a supporting unit. When they come in here, they get roughly six months of um, support financially from the government, which is you know, the least you could do. In a sure. Sense. Because we didn't pay them very well oh, while they were we over there. Shit. <laughs> so you get those six months, and you've got to learn the culture. 
You've got to learn how to drive. You've got to learn the simplest thing, basic laws, and the police aren't here to, to, what do you call, beat you and take all your money. Right. I mean, that's a crazy thing to say, but that's stuff they don't understand. Stoplights. I never saw one in Afghanistan. (laughs) Stop signs, yield signs, like everything we take for granted. Crosswalks. I mean, they didn't. I never saw a crosswalk in Afghanistan. <laughs> some was just the basics of human interaction at the same point in time. That's that's a also debit card, debit cards, banks, banks, grocery stores, that kind of different concepts and everything like that. That's something that takes a little while. And we'll have a mentorship. We'll have an individual sign who, for that six months, is going to be the number one contact. So they call at what do you call it? four in the morning, let's say, and you're like, my kid's sick. I don't know what to do with him. Where, where's the local doctor? You got to explain, hey, you just got to take them to the hospital. You just got to do this. Or they call because they can't do something as simple, you know, I can't get this internet fixed. They can't call tech support and the tech support is going to forward them someplace in India. Right. And, you know, they're not going to be really confused on that. So you have to really be supporting there and guiding that family. Same point, making introductions. We also tried our best to actually set them up with a career path here. I mean, a lot of these guys have degrees of some sort. They're not... Dumb people. I mean, I personally believe it's extremely difficult to learn a second language, <laughs> especially one as complex as English. Yeah, well, particularly, so I was listening to, oh gosh, it was Joe Rogan's podcast mm-hmm. the other day. It was Sebastian Junger was on there, and they were talking about after the age of like nine years old, you can still learn a language. It's going to be really tough, but you will never, ever mm-hmm. be able to perfect the um, the accent. Yes. Like it's just your, your brain has stopped developing in that sense. So if, if it's after nine, so these kids that come over, like they could live here 50 years, they're still going to sound like Afghans when they're older. Yeah. What's well, another thing you do? You get them kids enrolled in school, get them social security cards, all that, yeah. like literally everything. Everything needs to be Needs done. to be walked through with them. And you need to guide them to that and support them in that. And that's- And we do that because the government doesn't do that. Oh God. The government- drops them off at San Francisco or whatever, and it's a pat on the ass and a good luck, right? It's basically, hey, we got you to the States. Figure it out. <laughs> it's terrible. Know, That's you, scary. Yeah, if you had dropped off in China and said, figure it out, I would not, be du- I would not do well. <laughs> I'd not do well at all. So fortunately, we support them in ways such as that. Other things, when they come in, we want to give them the homecoming that they deserve. We want to come with the banners, the flags, have someone meet them and guide them. Um, in a sense to say, hey, you know what? You're safe now. This is America. This is how we represent, and this is how we treat people who have given so much for us. And that's that's the part that I really like to be involved in as well. Um, and just to kind of nail home, like uh, when you when you meet a Terp, right? Like, do you consider them like a, a that's a brother? Is that another veteran to you? It is a veteran. I say a, a veteran is someone who's who's really served with the troops. And, you know, if you look at some of these stories, I mean, even Matt Zeller, you know, his interpreter killed for him. Yeah. Killed for him and his buddies. How could that person not be a veteran? Right. They served this country. They didn't serve Afghanistan. They didn't serve Iraq. They served this country. They served this country. They, they, they in a sense, took a great ownership of anything. And they put so much on risk because we all know Taliban, Al-Qaeda goes and kills their families. The crime of the one, uh, one person in their eyes terminates the whole family. And they'll right. get every single person they can. Actually, now, though, even what do you call it, stealing all their money as well. Yeah. Like electronically. So they hold the family hostage, which is not great. So it's a mess. And of the, you know, 35,000 interpreters we have, 
that want to come over here. We think in the next eight years, we may be able to save 8,000 some. It's a lot. It's not enough necessarily. Well, it's a good start. It's less than 30%. Yeah. That's not a great number. Well, and it's in our, it's in our national security interest to do this because when we go to the next place and we ask locals like, Hey, trust us, we'll take care of you. If there's a, long line of dead Afghans behind us that we didn't take care of, it's going to be really hard to recruit those guys. So I would say it goes deeper than just national security answers. We have values, we have principles that we were founded on and raised in, in this country. Sure. One of those is doing the right thing. The golden rule in a sense. Yeah. So if you were my brother and you stood beside me, I can do the minimal least and do the right thing and make sure you're safe. I Particularly can when we told you that's what we're yeah. going to do. I can check that box on a piece of paper and bring you over here. There's some misconceptions on the vetting process and everything like that. No, it's thorough. It's extremely thorough. Well, Matt Zeller <laughs> said it best, right? Like, how could you better vet a guy than to hand him a gun and then turn around and he not shoot you? He shoots the enemy instead, right? Like, all right, that's pretty vetted. Because worst case scenario, a guy comes to America, he gets a gun, well, we already know he's going to do with it, right? He's, mm -hmm. he's not going to shoot you. Like, he had his chance to harm America if he wanted to. He obviously doesn't want to. I, I, that's, that's the most extreme vetting I think you could possibly have. I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, I, again, going back to, you know, I'm, no, I'm a Republican. I know it's like I'm reasonably conservative in several different areas. But it goes beyond it. This goes to the principles and the values we hold. If I make a contract, whether orally or in writing, I should uphold it. Absolutely. And that's kind of also what drives me. My own experiences overseas, our own interpreters, you know, fighting beside us, eating the same food, living the same shitholes, um, nauseous case stepping on an ID and it not going off because he weighs 10 pounds. Couldn't make the wires touch on the pressure plate. <laughs> I was like, nice man. <laughs> Better him than the fat kid, right? Oh, yeah. I was like, well, I mean, it's a good thing you stepped on it and it didn't blow up, and now I see where it's at. Yeah, just hear that click. <laughs> but uh, All right, well, last question. How long have you been in? Eight, nine 12. years now? Twelve years. How many are you going to do? Uh, at this point, i got to do 20. You're going to do 20? Not going to do like 30? or Because you know what they do. Like, So you'll make E7 in a few years, and then you'll be at 19. They'll be like, hey, man, we'll give you E8 if you stick in just like two more years. And then you take it, and they'll be like, hey, man, we'll give you E9 uh, if you I'll just stick in like two more years. Two more years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you say, I'll give you an extra rank. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be a, you know, a first sergeant, a sergeant major. Gun, Gunny's kind of where I'm going to tap out here and be like, okay, this is where I want to be. I'm still with the Marines. I'm not doing purely administrative work. I'm still leading because that's what I want to do. I want to lead those Marines. I want to, what do you call it, be interact with that. I want to raise more leaders yeah. within the corps. And well, once you're a Gunny, Everyone respects yeah, everyone, you. Well, everyone respects you. Sorry, Major ain't going to talk to you like you're an idiot yeah. if you're a gunny, right? So you got nothing to gain, really. Yeah. But you're you're kind of detached from that. Yeah, that uh, admin that bullshit. Admin <laughs> bullshit level highness that kind of really, yeah. really sucks. No you don't much. have to be in there for Article 15s and stuff, making recommendations to the colonel and that crap. Yeah. So that, that's where I'll tap out in a sense on really looking for a promotion. Now, if they offer me more money to stay a couple extra yeah. years, I'll, different, I'll think different about conversation. that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man. Thanks a ton. I'm sure your no mom's problem, looking man. forward to the day when you get out. Oh, uh, well, she's going to have to wait a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks, dude. We'll have to have you back, dude. Thanks.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.